Welcome to See Here Speak podcast, episode 47. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Jean Tai about the diagnosis of developmental language disorder, and in particular, how to share it with caregivers. I first had the pleasure of meeting Jean on October 18th, 2019, when I presented at the Dyslexia Foundation annual Fall Educator Training Day. She introduced herself in a purple dress and yellow belt to honor that day as DLD Day with the DLD colors. It was fabulous to connect with another DLD advocate at that dyslexia conference. And I'm just so excited to be talking with her on the podcast three years later. Check out our then and now pictures on social media. After listening, don't forget to check out the website, www.seeherspeakpodcast.com, to sign up for email alerts for new episodes and content, read a transcript of this podcast, access articles and resources that we discussed, and find more information about our guests. Okay, so welcome to episode 47 of See, Here Speak podcast. Today I have my friend and colleague, Jean Tai. Jean, I'm going to have Hi. you start by introducing yourself. Great. Thanks, Tiffany. I'm so excited to be doing this with you today. Um, so like so many SLPs, I wear several hats. Um, so primarily, I am a clinical speech and language pathologist in private practice. Uh, I'm a board certified specialist in child language. So I SLP focusing on children. I work uh, very largely with school-aged children with language disorders, so very largely DLD and dyslexia or both or some combinations or, you know, variants thereof. Um, I also happen to be a teacher of the deaf with a background in hearing, which is an interesting um, interesting dovetail sometimes at, with, you know, two different focuses that inform each other. And I still do, I focus mostly on language and language disorders, but still do some work with children with uh, hearing loss and who use listening spoken language, which is really fun. Um, I'm also an adjunct professor at Kane University. I teach courses on language development and language disorders in children. And when I have a little bit of free time, in my free time, I, uh, I'm a contributor to the Informed SLP. I serve as one of their topic area experts in literacy. Oh, that's great. I don't think I knew that. That's fantastic. I was learning something new already. <laughs> Very proud to be part of that team. Yep. They're, if you haven't yet, you, your listeners should definitely check them out. Great team. Fantastic. So in your practice, you mentioned that you see children with a variety of language uh, disorders, but what do you see as the most pressing needs to improve serving these children with developmental language disorder? Yeah, it's such a great question. I'd actually like to start with what we do well for right. children with DLD. So yeah. I, I think that what I see consistently that we're doing well for kids with DLD is we are seeing and serving their difficulties with reading and writing. I think the reading and writing problems that they tend to experience are, are kind of easy to see. They're, they're right out there for a lot of professionals to notice. And then we tend to get on board and come to the table well as families, SLPs, teachers, learning specialists to say, oh, look, there's classroom impact. There's something going on here in the classroom. 
let's get on it. Um, and that's not to say that everything is perfect in the land of reading and writing. We have lots of work to do, but I think we serve our kids with DLD in the academic space quite consistently. So then that kind of leads to where I think I see the pressing need. I think the needs are in all the ways that DLD impacts the child's life beyond those observable classroom academic issues. Um, so, you know, something that I find myself talking about a lot is that DLD, you know, we, we because we find it in children and we access children through schools, right? So most children with DLD get found in school by their school-based SLPs. And, and so someone's looking at their language through an educational lens, it makes sense. And so we talk about DLD often as a learning disability, but DLD is not just a learning disability. DLD absolutely impacts learning in the school setting, but DLD is a communication disability, right? Mm -hmm. So what I hear over and over again from families of children with DLD is, you know, it's, it's, we want to get school right. We want to make sure they're helped in school, but also there's so much challenge outside school. We are challenged at home to communicate. We see our child struggling socially to communicate with their peers. We see our child uh, goes out into the world to their sports activities, to their religious activities, whatever they have. And the communication problems there, uh, there's often no supports in, you know, outside school. And, and so, I keep seeing over and over again, the social, the community implications of DLD um, are spaces where families really need us as SLPs to be helping them out. And that can be a real struggle because they do access us so much through school. Um, so I see that boundary you know, as a challenge. Um, so I keep coming back to like the, the social needs and, and that, of course, also kind of gets to the emotional part, too. It's tough to be a, a kid with DLD who maybe struggles to join in the conversation, you know, to kind of hang with what everybody else is doing. And um, so I, I think there's there's that also a component of, of supporting our kids with DLD kind of in that more holistic way of what's, what's your experience um, and how can we make you feel comfortable and help build some confidence uh, beyond beyond the classroom. That makes good sense. So it almost seems that because we know DLD is the child and DLD are intertwined. So they have a brain that makes it difficult to process language and the child's then moving through all their environments with that same brain. And even though we're focused in education, it almost seems like they need support, we know, across all these different contexts. But how do you see as one way to get that support to them in those multiple contexts? Uh, it's a great question. I think the first that comes to mind is family. I think the family is really the mediating unit there. You know, for myself as the service provider, I'm not going to be on the baseball field. Uh, you know, I'd love to, that sounds fun, but that's likely not going to be a point of service delivery for me, right? But if I can work with the family and help the family in certain ways that I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, through our conversation today to equip them 
to then be, you know, the, the family, the parents, the caregivers are going to be with that child, seeing all those nuances. And when they're empowered to, to advocate, to educate others, um, that, that goes so far. I, I mentioned the baseball field, but this example happens to me all the time. I have this conversation repeatedly with uh, parents and caregivers where I'm explaining DLD and maybe for the first time, even though they've known their child has struggled with something for a long time. And I, I've heard so many parents say something, almost the same story, like, oh, this makes so much sense to me now. When I think about baseball practice and my kid goes to baseball practice and the coach is explaining a new play and a new drill and he's giving all these instructions. And then my kid goes to the back of the line to be the last one to try the new drill. And I always thought she was being lazy or shy or just, just didn't have any confidence. And now I get it. She wanted to watch everybody else do it because she didn't understand what he said. It was the language. You know, I see these aha moments for families when they go, oh, I've been seeing this, but I didn't think it was the language. I thought it was insert, you know, something else. And so then when that family has that understanding, they can start to be the, the mediators and then and, and help their child too. And we can help coach the child how to anticipate, you know, when something might be challenging and what to say. Um, you know, we can't anticipate every, every challenge, but like tools then become possible, I think, when that understanding is passed along. Yeah, that makes great sense. And then also the parent can, as you said, really almost be a model for what the child can do to empower themselves to communicate these needs. And so the parent then can say to the coach, perhaps, hey, you know, he has DLD or he has difficulty understanding these instructions. So it's best if he can see a model and then all children benefit from that model. So even like, you know, the, the strategies we know that help with language comprehension can benefit all children. So, you know, an awareness. And I also see the same thing that what we see as characteristics of DLD get um, reinterpreted as personality traits, right? So it's like, oh, well, they are hesitant. They are shy. They are uh, lazy at the worst end. You know, at the best end, it's shy and hesitant. At the worst end, it's lazy and, and or also the attention aspect. Doesn't want to pay attention. Doesn't, you know, isn't uh, interested in socializing. So all these, uh, you know, attributes that are really characteristics of DLD. But of course, some something that is a struggle that I see uh, my, my research and practice is that um, you know, DLD is not a widely used or understood term still, even though we are talking about it and, you know, have been involved in campaigns to bring awareness. It's not really, you know, it's not being used widely. And you wrote a paper recently in the American Journal of SLP on how to really help caregivers understand and digest the DLD diagnosis. And I love that paper. I thought it was just like dead on. This is what we need. But tell me about it because it used a specific method. And I just love for the listeners to know more about this because we're talking about in parenting, empowering parents, but we also have the link have to have our own language to do that. Yeah, exactly. That's that's where this paper of mine started from. So uh this paper um, that we'll talk about started back, the idea started with um, some publications that came out in, in 2020 that started having this, this 
um, conversation in the literature about how if we look at parents and caregivers and how they talk about language disorders, we can really see some challenges. There was a paper Ash and colleagues and then Porter and colleagues, two papers in 2020 that were really aligned in saying, we are struggling as a profession to communicate information effectively to the parents and caregivers so that they can do what they need for their children. And when those papers came out, I was seeing that dynamic in my clinical practice every day. And it was so impactful for me to see the literature mirror my clinical experience like so profoundly that it is no exaggeration to say they inspired me to go get a doctorate and do some of my own work. Like I have to continue, I felt I had to continue that work. That was so important to me. So um, I got involved in an SLPD program, part of which was kind of doing some of my own research and writing and work. And so I, I picked up where, where I felt like the next logical step from their work was. So if we know that parents and caregivers are saying when we talk to them, you know, they were kind of saying like, the nutshell was, I know there's a thing with language, but I don't really get it. You know, if we kind of start there, then I wanted to figure out how we could do better as SLPs in this, in that pivotal conversation, that conversation where I'm an SLP, I have had this child on my caseload for assessment, I have found a language disorder. And so now I have something to communicate to this family. So that's a disclosure conversation. I'll, like, I'll, I use that term in the paper and I'll use it in, in our conversation here. So disclosure, meaning that critical conversation where you're delivering this, um, this diagnosis. And, and I think any of us who are involved in SLP practice with children and language disorders, we know we have a, a number of challenges with disclosure. You know, first, first of all, there's a, there's a lot of conversations that um, one of the big challenges we have with disclosure goes back to this issue of um, how so many SLPs encounter children in the school setting and what do schools say and require and forbid and allow and not allow in terms of disclosure, diagnostic disclosure in a school setting. That's a, a, a clear issue, but it's not the only issue. And like, we could talk about that some more, but it's not the only issue. I think there's another layer of issue, um, which is that telling caregivers that their child has a disability, that's a really difficult conversation. And many of us as, as SLPs, we're not really formal, formally prepared with the skills to like have what is essentially a bad news conversation. Um, that's a skill set. So, and I, I, I the, the diagnostics and education is a, a whole issue and we can discuss it, but that's not something we can kind of solve quickly or easily. But I did feel like, you know what, what we can do is figure out ways to have conversations that work effectively and then maybe also connect them to some of those challenges in, in education. So. I set out to like review the literature on parent and caregiver experiences with disclosure of some kind of disability in their children. And although we in SLP have struggled with this with, with DLD or language disorders, you know, there's lots of spaces in which it's done all the time, like telling a child that, that a parent that their child has hearing loss. I mean, you know, 
that's standard practice happens all the time um, or disclosure of an autism diagnosis for in a toddler or other developmental disabilities um, so i i dove into what are parent how, how do parents and caregivers experience those moments what wisdom can we take from studies that have been done of, of parents who've gone through that and um and i i found some some wisdom there that i did think seemed ripe for applying to our uh dld diagnostic disclosure conversations and, and and that also led me to this model that is used by um in the medical world for these disclosure conversations of 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 bad news of some kind of something difficult that a provider has to convey to a patient so i i found this model in in medicine it's called the spikes model and i just slightly uh, redid it for our um, SLP context to make it the spices uh, model. And so it lays out a series of steps that a professional can follow to have set up and execute a, a diagnosis, diagnostic disclosure conversation that will feel okay, hopefully, and, and work uh, fairly effectively. So I can walk you through the spices. I would love to hear it. Yeah. Tell me about the yeah. different components of the spices model. Yeah. So, so we're going to follow the acronym spices, starting with an S, which stands for set up the conversation. And actually real quickly, before I kind of dive into that, I'll kind of preempt these by saying, I think most clinicians will listen to most of these steps and go, I do that. And that's great. Um, I think the model, it's not revolutionary, but I do think if you, if when we think through all of them um, and think through our practices, there's likely a spot or two or three that we could pinpoint and think, oh, I could beef that up a little bit, or I could expand that a little bit, or I could think through that a different way. Um, so, you know, I want to acknowledge from the get-go, I'm sure, uh, you know, most clinicians are doing most of these things most of the time, maybe probably without really thinking about what they're doing. That's always the help of a model, right? Mm -hmm. To say yeah. like, this actually helps, even if you're doing a lot of it already to set the framework for your own planning in the future um, and your practice. I find myself checking myself uh, still uh, all the time and, and often going, oh, I could have done that one better that time. Right. Uh, so, so back to S. Um, so Spices starts with S for set up the conversation. Um, a diagnostic disclosure conversation needs some time. Uh, and, you know, right off the bat, that sounds simple, but that could actually be a pretty significant problem for a lot of SLPs. Um, if you're working in an educational setting, often you're delivering your assessment results at a meeting with many other professionals at the table and you may have five minutes at that table and a big audience and and so right there like right off the bat such a simple thing we we often like might be encountering oof that's something i don't feel like i have so you know, I, uh, and, and medical too, right? Our medical time, if you're an SLP in a medical setting, your time is really, really regulated by payer and, you know, billing and all the things. So I think that while there's no easy solutions there, I think if we recognize I'm not going to be able to convey everything I need to convey in, in a few minutes, maybe I plan to, um, I might need several time slots we maybe we need to set up that this is a first part of a conversation that we can have you know different parts of later um 
or do some pre-meeting work or what, whatever might work in that situation. But there's, there's probably some problem solving on the front end for most SLPs to ask, how can I carve some time with these parents or caregivers to acknowledge that this is a hefty conversation, but it's worth, it's worth that investment of time one way or another to make it happen all the way through the rest of the steps. It seems like it's so easy uh, to be pushing it to the end, almost like you're going over all the results and then it's almost an afterthought, like, oh, by the way, your child also seems very in line with what's called developmental language disorder. And then here's some good resources, but there's not the space. So I like how it's like set up, but it almost seems like space mentally uh, is so important to this because I'm a consistent meditator. And the thing that it's taught me is that you can create space, even in a moment that feels rushed by just slowing your own breath or really giving all of the attentive cues and just pausing and saying, do you have follow-up questions? Or, you know, it's just almost like we're all rushed, you know, in, in what we do as a clinician, researcher, instructor, rushed. And so we're constantly like our brain, I always feel like my body and brain is halfway to the next appointment. But when I'm feeling in that mode, it almost feels like what you're saying is to make sure you're all in, all there, and that you've set up your context to have the space to communicate. That's so important. And I think you're right. We don't have that often, unfortunately. Yeah, I agree. And I I love how you, you start off saying, you know, we have this kind of agenda. Uh, if we walk through our evaluation report and this kind of opens a whole nother can of worms in a sense. It's all in the wrong order. Oh. You know, we can spend so much time on, on details that are not really meaningful to that family and then leave ourselves with 30 seconds for like the final statement. And, you know, I, I find myself often in my practice lately challenging myself to say, look, I love my data. I love, I love diving in. I can get really nerdy about language sample analysis and I've got all kinds of things. And that is not meaningful to my clients most of the time. What is meaningful to them is what's, what's the point? What's going on with my kiddo and what can I do next? So I, like, I challenge myself to, as attached as I may be to my details, probably like really subordinate them and put the big things first. Lead with the big things as much as possible or make sure you leave space for, look, this is what's going on. Let me explain, like, let me sum it up and, and know that when you do make that big statement, I have findings that are consistent with, with developmental language disorder that never mind all your details. That was the important thing. And then they're going to have all kinds of of questions. And that's going to lead, and that's the important stuff. That's the meat of like what we really want to deal with in these conversations. Absolutely. And I know as a parent, I have dealt with that myself because I have two children on IEPs and it's like, I just want them to, then IEP means my husband and I are just sitting there and it's all these details. And I'm just kind of like, okay, what I really want you to tell me is what support does he need? How's he doing? You know, and it's the pressing question, like, how is he doing socially? Does he have friends? Like, you know, how does he feel about class? And of course, it's always the, you know, the data, which is great. I'm a scientist. I want to see the data, but it's such a mismatch because I remember as a clinician feeling like I was hesitant to give a diagnosis, but actually it's the opposite. The parents just, at least from my point of view, and now my years of experience, they want you to give it if it's there. 
just tell me, <laughs> just tell me in, what it is. A hundred percent. In fact, in, in the background research I did for the spices model, when I looked at all these studies of parents and caregivers and their experience with disclosure, I found some really interesting statements and in qualitative studies where parents said things like, and again, these were not for DLD specifically for, you know, hearing loss or autism or other things where they said, you know, if I had an interaction with a professional where I didn't get a diagnosis, where I came away and said, but what's the problem? I felt that professional wasn't doing a great job. Mm. You know, it, that led, that can lead to distrust on the, on the parents part when they're feeling like, but there's gotta be something. And it's not every parent's instinct is always right. But you know, if a parent is really seeing something and feeling, I know there's a thing here, help me understand it. And we don't do that. If we don't come and rise to that occasion, that really can brew some, some parent professional mistrust. And none of us as professionals want that that sets up a really tough working relationship you know um so that's one of the that brings back you know one of the reasons why doing these disclosure conversations well it's so important for them and it kind of ends up important for us too as, as the professional like we're gonna have more trust from the family when we're clear in and that what we clear have phrase say. there that clear phrase of rise to the occasion that's really what it boils down to, you know, it really does. But having this kind sure. of model helps to practice that, that clinical practice part of just of rising to that occasion, having the model and these steps helps you to do that. For sure. For sure. So that should bring us to P, right? <laughs> so let's go to P. So we were at, we were at S. Uh, so, so the next step, um, P stands for perceptions. So it's important in, in a diagnostic disclosure conversation to not just be delivering information. It should be a conversation. It should be two ways. And it's, it, you'll, I think as a clinician, you'll find that your conversation is smoothed if you make a little space to ask the parent or caregiver about their perceptions of their child's communication. And I, I find for myself, I do quite a bit of diagnostics. If I start with like, so, so talk to me about communicating with your child. Like, what do you notice? And when I get like that baseball story, you know, even if it's before the light bulb goes off, that gives me an opening to say, you know, that experience that you have, that thing that you noticed, I found some stuff that explains it. Mm -hmm. So beginning with the caregiver's observations and perceptions can really validate what you're going to say. But sometimes, and sometimes you may find that the caregiver's perceptions are um, maybe off base compared to what you're going to say. You know, as you and I were saying earlier, a lot of families, just families, I think often reach for, and I, I'm guilty as a, a parent, like I think this is very natural to reach for the most accessible explanation for something that you see. So it's more accessible to say, my daughter, she's shy. You know, that's a more accessible explanation than my daughter has an invisible language disorder. Um, obviously, that's not the first thing the parent's going to reach for, right? So to start with, so what do you see happening with your child in some way, whatever way that question makes sense in, in the context? And, and even if that is the parent's perception, I, I see she's shy. That gives you an opening then as the clinician to, well, you know, so let me tell you about some things I found and how that how that connects to what you see about her being shy. So the, the caregiver's perceptions can guide the conversation really effectively. That makes what you're going to say so meaningful. 
That makes great sense because you're really meeting parents where they are and you're putting it into a context that really makes sense for them and what they're seeing as opposed to the jargon we sometimes use as well. So it could, seems like a nice way to tie to the jargon a bit as well. For sure. And I find that, you know, we communicate all the time. So it's, it's, I've rarely met a family who wasn't able to tell me about the DLD without knowing that's what they were saying. You know, they see it, they're experiencing it. And so when, if I get them to talk, we'll find it, it'll show up in their conversation about their own child in their talk about their observations and perceptions. So we want to get that in the disclosure conversation. And then at that point, it's time for, for I, which is kind of the, uh, like the entree, if you will, like the, the big part, which is, okay, we're going to inform. So we, it's time to inform the parents or caregivers about the, the diagnosis. We want to share the label DLD if we can. And I believe in most cases you can, even if it might be a little bit backdoor or a little bit to the side of another term, if that's what your setting requires. Um, but we need to inform about that term and then kind of right, right in there, right away, begin to provide some information about what does this term mean? Uh, what are kind of some key, key things that family needs to know right off the bat? And this part I think is such a challenge because most of our families will not have uh, a familiarity. You know, so you mentioned your children. As a parent myself, my son has ADHD. It came as absolutely no surprise to me when my child was diagnosed with ADHD. Like that, it was an easy conversation. Uh, and not even just because I was a professional, because this is a person living in the world. I had heard of that. I had some, and I could go, yep, got it. That's a lot harder when the, the family doesn't have background exposure to this term that we're giving. So I think that's really a, a a kind of pain point for, for us in this space of we are delivering like really kind of raw information. So it's so important for us to be prepared to give some, we can't overdo it because we could flood them easily with information, uh, some carefully chosen important information and some follow-ups, you know, I'm going to tell you some stuff now, and I'm going to lead you to some good information uh, that is going to be easy for you to access and pick up where I left off. What's your go-to that's, information? That's What's your yeah, go-to? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's, it's been, look, it's been tough. You know, we're just getting there. We're just getting there. So for the last several years, dldandme.org, that, um, we're also grateful you've been a leader of and, and so many great people working on, on that has been, thank goodness that that's there. That's my, one of my first things that I share. Um, I do, I like giving parents Instagram accounts uh, because that's so digestible. And there are some fantastic ones. The DLD Projects Instagram account is a great one. Um, so I'll, I'll give a few like, look, follow this. And, and that little daily dose of information makes it real. Right. Um, and so the need for things in this space actually also inspired me to write a resource for parents and caregivers, which is just launching into the world. So uh, I wrote uh, an ebook for families as an introduction to DLD. Uh, it's an interactive uh, navigable PDF that goes through what is DLD? 
what you can do at home, kind of a little bit about how to manage school and a little bit of the long term view that I think is really important to just like kind of get out ahead of, hey, this is going to be something you're going to live with with your child. Uh, so now I'm connecting families to uh, to my work in that space, too. Oh, that's so exciting. I am so happy to hear this because I think that these websites, that your ebook, it just gives not only important information, but legitimacy to a diagnosis that we just don't have public awareness around. And it can feel so isolating when you have this and easy to forget if you have nowhere to you know, go forward. And uh, you know, we're talking about children in their environments and we're talking about family environment that typically will include also siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, community, not if it's the family they are born with, but the family they choose, their community, their church community, their neighborhood community, their sports community, any way to convey that information in a legitimate way through a book um, a pamphlet, uh, something on the web that really is, um, you know, clearly vetted. It just, ugh, it makes all the difference. And it's one of the reasons I have felt so honored to be involved in DLD and me led by Carla McGregor, because it was a way to have an outlet to then also send those I work with to this website. And you know, I mean, I've talked about this a ton on the, on the podcast and, and, you know, we know this is just this idea that the prevalence is the same as dyslexia, but yet we don't have the awareness. And it's like, you can say dyslexia, ADHD, for instance, autism, these other ones, you can say it. And there's almost immediate legitimacy to it. There's a lot of misperceptions, of course, but there's a legitimacy there that we don't have uh, with DLD that we're getting. And I am so excited to share your book. And this is just so fantastic. And I'll link it in the show notes and in the resource page um, and on the, you know, on Instagram and, and everywhere I can, because this is so important. And is today the day that you got the website you said, or is, or when so that you- it, it, it is it, the, the book has been done for a little while, but it's it's finding its forever homes on the on the internet. So uh, we have a space that it will permanently live on my practices website. So we'll link that in the notes. Uh, it is also going to be um, housed on the DLD project, their website, uh, and Rattled USA as well. So it'll be uh, in a few different spaces, but we'll put a link where it can always be found. It's free, it's downloadable, and anybody can share it with anybody. Uh, And that was the goal, to have something that somebody could just hand to somebody else and hand to somebody else. Uh, A parent could hand to their their teacher or, you know, whoever is in their parents. Oh my gosh, I think about like grandparents as a you know as a parent when you need to explain what's going on your child to your own parents and to your siblings and um I I have had parents say to me so many times like what can you give me that I can give to so and so you know I need to explain this to others that every child has a community around them in some way and the more we understand the better and it's really wild when you think about it right that everything under the sun is all over the internet. And like, here we have this, this condition that affects seven to 8% of our children in the world. And 
it's been so hard to find sources. So we're, we're getting there. The community of professionals who are invested in DLD, we're all, every, so many people are doing so many things. And I think I'm excited to see in the years ahead of us, I think this is, I can feel it easing a little bit already. And we're, that will continue as, like you said, being able to cross-reference too. Like it's not just this one space, but this space and this space and a search yields many results. And there are many people having the conversation. That's what we need in momentum. And we're, we're doing it. Um, but the more that the more people are joining us and having the conversation and sharing the resources, it, like you said, legitimacy, it brings legitimacy to, to all of them. So that hopefully, you know, I would love to envision practice. I don't know, a few years from now, five years from now, where I can talk to DLD about a family and they'll go, oh yeah, yeah, okay. Like, you know, where that, where we'll start from a place like I do when I tell families, families their child has dyslexia and they go, yeah, I kind of figured, or I suspected, or I do too, right? And that's another thing we've been missing because we have had this communication problem in the space for so long that DLD runs in families too, but our families don't know that. So, you know, I have so many parents coming to me and saying, I have dyslexia and I can see my six-year-old's not reading it. So we got to take a look at this. We don't have that in DLD yet. You know, we're putting all this investment in and I, I think we'll, we'll get, we'll get there with, with this work um, growing and spreading as it is. Yeah. Crossed. And I'll take a little, tan, if, if you will indulge me, I'll take a bit of a divergence from your model on sure. I. So we have SPI and I'm just going to take a bit of a divergence to ask you related to information. You've been involved in the U.S.-based rattle campaign and we just had DLD awareness October 14th. Um, I would love to learn more about that process and what you've found most exciting about this year's campaign. I've been so involved in DLD and me, but I have an intent. I have intentionally been a little less involved in Rattle. First off, there's many other people that can do it. Um, and also just my own, you know, time uh, protection and balance. But I want to hear more about, uh, you know, your efforts in that way. Yeah, so uh, I've been so proud to be uh, a part of Rattle, the USA branch, since uh, early in its beginnings. Um, and so Rattled, R-A-D-L-D, we're saying that quickly for anyone who's not familiar, it stands for Raising Awareness of Developmental Language Disorder. So R-A-D-L-D.org will get you to the, the sort of parent organization. It is an international, it's an, actually an incredible international organization now with many branches in many countries and we're across multiple languages. It started out focusing on English language countries and like really quickly blew right past those boundaries, which was so exciting. So we have a USA, an active USA branch now. And so we have our own, we now have um, rattle.org slash USA is our, our particular um, home on the internet. Um, so yeah, I've been involved with Rattled since USA since early in their time. And so this um, DLD Awareness Day was started by the International Rattled Organization for, I believe it is always the second Friday in October. I think that's how it's how it's mapped out, right? So we just recently, as the, we're recording this later in October, and we just had it. And this year's um, DLD Awareness Day theme was growing with DLD. And I loved that theme. I was kind of blown away when I started to see the um, visuals and the, you know, campaign come out. I think it was the just right message. Um, I think one of the most important pieces of information about DLD that 
we need to convey in this public awareness space is that DLD is a lifelong condition, that it is not language delay, that the child does not grow out of it. I think that that message, the louder the clearer, sure, many children are truly language delayed and grow out of it and, and talk late and rock and roll with language later on. That's not what DLD is. DLD is a brain-based difficulty with learning language that stays with the individual over the course of their lifespan. And it will change how it looks and how it affects them will change. They will grow and the DLD will stay and grow with them. And when we understand that, I think it, it can, it's at once, it's maybe a little bit daunting. Oh my gosh, this never goes away. But it's also, I think it shifts everybody into the most productive frame of mind that we can have, which is, okay, so how do we live with this? How do we thrive with it? How do we plan for it to be with this individual and make things work for them as best as we can? And that's that's disability, right? Like let's help them function with the, with the abilities they have, with the challenges they have and work with those challenges and, and abilities. And when we focus on like growing with the DLD, um, I, I think that's, we, we have real, we get realistic, we get down to work, we get to function. And that's like the, uh, the most important impact, you know, as professionals, I feel that, that we can have with them. So that, that message was um, focused on this year. And I, I couldn't, like, I couldn't imagine a better one. I think that's right oh, where we need to be. I thought it was great too. I mean, it's just right in line with also this right in line with the talk we're having about diagnosing as well, because as you mentioned, there are several contexts, including many school contexts in which you, the, the idea of diagnosing is just not encouraged, sometimes forbidden. It's just not a part of the practice because, you know, in the U S we use our IDEA qualification, uh, labels. And so I've been trying to think through this idea of like, there's a diagnosis that that will live with you. That's what, but you have labels that allow you to receive supports in certain contexts. So in schools, the label could be specific learning disability around comprehension that then provides support for a child who's you know maybe a little older who has DLD, but it's not that the DLD went away. It's not that the DLD changed. It's not that the child has, you know, uh, you know, if it, this is a common story here is like early on they have developmental delay and that's how they receive services and then they get a speech and language impairment label and then they get the label of specific learning disability and parents will often think that's three separate conditions not this idea that you have you know your the child's brain it's processing the world in a certain way and that processing engenders some uh disability quote unquote because of what society requires from the child. And then it also, you know, there's a lot of strengths that children have. So then it's like, you know, thinking about the idea that that child is moving through a system that has different labels that are given to provide support. And I think that is to me also a message that we are working towards for for all learning disabilities. And there's been some nice headway with, for instance, autism. You know, if a child has an autism label, they receive services in the schools. 
under IDEA um, and that label stays with them and they get the support they need. Ideally, what doesn't change, the label shouldn't change, but the support should change according to what the child needs developmentally. And we see that happening with dyslexia. That's the hope too, with all the dyslexia laws that are passing. And so I, I think this, uh, like you, I think the campaign's focus on growing with DLD was magnificent and was right on with where we need to move forward because that message will change the way we think about our practice and support for children with DLD who grow into adults with DLD. <laughs> that, that's, that's it, right? So when I, when I wrote my, my book for families, I interviewed two adults with DLD to share their experiences and their quotes are, are interwoven throughout the book. And it was interesting for, um, so the two adults, one of them uh, was my speech and language client from the time they were uh, like little and they're now in their mid twenties. Uh, and the other one I met as a college professor and, and they were in my college class and had uh, accommodations and we got to talking. Uh, so in order for me to talk with these two individuals, adults, and I very much wanted to include their adult experiences, I had to explain to them what they knew they had, they knew, you know, they were very clear on, they had learning issues and they, you know, but I needed to tell them this term and, and we needed to like clear that hurdle and have them go, well, yeah, yeah, that's totally me. And then we could move on from there. Um, and, and then when I got to talk to them, both of them happened to be in their mid twenties, about their their experiences as adults, they they both talked about things like they both work and they're employed and that's great, but the challenges at work that come from language. One of them was explaining, "I'm in this new training program at work, and it takes me longer to learn the. It's still you know it's still the language, these new terms, and I have to hear the messages a few times, and I have to ask them to explain themselves. And here's this you know adult you know out in the world in a career still talking about how they deal with the language challenges, and they both talked about dating how dating as an individual with and 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 actually like in our conversation they were processing their experience you know like this it's the words don't come out well easily for me so it can be hard to kind of inter in um like a get going with an interaction with somebody with a relationship even just as you know any kind of social relationship because the words are hard and that's a challenge you know so here are these adults it was so fascinating to spend time having them share these ways that it's still a thing. Like that was that was words both of them used in their own ways. It's still a thing for me. And I'm doing well and I feel good and I and I know it about myself, but I have to deal with it. And I I think we, as you the examples you gave with like dyslexia and autism, it's so clear. Person, we can, you know, diagnose a two-year-old with autism and they will have continuity over the course of their life, the opportunity to understand themselves as an individual with autism and work with that support in school, support in college, support in the workplace, developmental disability services, all kinds of things, community that they can find of others with autism. And it, it will, that term will serve them. It's a gift to them. It serves them over their lifespan. And like, we need to do that for our individuals with DLD. That's where I want to see us go. Um, and that all starts with we gotta have we gotta have the term and we gotta share it and we gotta be talking about it. 
You know, it also, I have to admit as early when I was a clinician early on, I do think I had this view that I wanted to fix, really fix, like remediate, truly remediate so that I would catch these kids early, remediate it, and then they would just go on their happy way. And <clears throat> first off, you know, we don't need to fix anyone. No need to fix. Fix is totally wrong. Of course, I've since, you know, learned that over and over and, 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 you know, but I just think that this is something that can be pervasive in our field uh, is this idea that we need to fix, that we need to normalize when truly uh, neurodivergence, you know, is, uh, you know, it's not something to fix. It is something to cherish and to um, really support the person. I just I always like to think of support versus fix because the support is like coming from the person. What is the person doing at that time? What do they desire to do? What is their human desire? And then how do we support the accomplishment of that goal is truly what we need to be doing. And I, I think these campaigns around growing with DLD really hit the heart of it is that it's there's not anything to fix that this is something we do as support and educate and empower. Because like you said, they're the ones going with, you know, this is who they are. Um, and that's not nothing to be ashamed of, you know, and, and I, I just think these campaigns are amazing in that way. Yeah, I, I agree. I am also a member of a former member of the I Want to Fix It Club. I think most of us are an SLP. Yeah. I think that's a part of the profession and like what it's been, I, I'm hopeful and optimistic. And I believe that we're evolving out of that as a profession with much thanks to the leadership of the autism community in bringing us all to think about neurodiversity differently. There are so many trailblazers there that have pulled us out of a space of being fixers. And, and I think I do, I think we're like crawling out of that identity as a profession. We're like, oh, wait, that's not what we're here to do. We don't need to fix anybody because if if this is if if we're talking about a brain-based difference, it's going to be a brain-based difference. And that's fine. That can be totally fine. But also it's a challenge. So what we can do as professionals is help our client meet their challenge. And doesn't that feel better for everybody? Like I feel as the professional, I I feel like I can do my best work when the family and I are clear that I'm not fixing anything. Now, that is not what we're doing here. I can do I can do good work. And also I feel that then they, if we're in that space together and we all understand that, then the family has realistic expectations of me and and can get invested in what I can do well. Cause we all know, because we can't fix it. I think this has been such a problem historically in the language, you know, disorder um therapist family interaction i think so many of us get caught with um many of us get get like caught in an interaction with the family where they they want us to fix mm -hmm. yes. and, and there's groundwork that needs to be laid and sometimes that's hard work to do to come together and and, and establish that that's not what we're doing mm -hmm. but that that groundwork is such a worthwhile and investment on the part of the professional to help the family come like meet me at I'm not fixing that this isn't about normalizing test scores this isn't about getting into the average range and fixing that number and seeing 100 or whatever it's going to be it's about 
I mean, certainly we can we can make improvements. We know that language therapy can be effective to make some improvements. We can grow skills. We can improve syntax. We can teach morphology. We can do you know we can do all kinds of cool things, but we got to stay focused on function and the individual being who they are and helping them be their their best self. And it it's such a more um, like I think clinical practice gets, I, I actually can like feel my own tension release just thinking about how much easier it is and more productive it is to practice this way. Um, and and that's like, that starts again, right? That starts with the talk. That starts with the talk of establishing together that this is what we've got. This is what we're working with. Yeah, it's a perfect segue to yeah. back to spices. <laughs> and thank you for taking a little tangent there. But yeah, um, like absolutely. I love it. Yeah. So, okay. So if we've, we set the stage, we heard what the parents were thinking. We now gave some basic information. We delivered a, a term. We've given some basic information. That's the I. So now C is, is connect. So we really want to connect the family with sources of information and connection other than us. We're great. The professional is great, but let's connect them beyond, you know, me as the provider. So, so that, that connect can take a bunch of different forms. Certainly, I, you know, written information is like a first and foremost, um, online resources is important. Connections to other families are really important. It's so huge for a family to see, you're not alone. And goodness, with such a prevalent condition, they aren't alone. We want these families to form community. So they're not reinventing the wheels. So they're not, you know, having to trailblaze independently all the time. Um, so that can look, this connection can look a lot of different ways. Uh, and again, it might depend on your setting and, and who it is you're working with. You know, I've, I, as a private practitioner, I have over the years, developed a little bank of families who say, I want to talk to other families. You get a new family, you have them call me. I'll talk to any month. I, you know, there's, there are moms and dads out there who say, have them call me. Um, and that's like that, that simple connection can be just gold to the next family who needed that. And, and online communities are really good at that too. If you're following the right social media accounts, you're engaged in the conversation and you're hearing what others are saying. And that, fuels so much that fuels their own parent advocacy like that can be you know can be taken into um big things that we hope for for these individuals uh to be able to form community and i think that's a big part of rattle right because that's where you can form online and they have developed such an amazing community and really um let those who have dld uh, and not only not let but encourage and support those who have dld telling their own story not letting other people speak for them, but telling their own story right in line with the autism community, you know, no work about me without me. I love 100%. what they've really blazed that trail, as you said. So that community is so, so, so important. Yeah, we're getting there again. Um, and then so next, uh, we're all, almost at the end there. Then we have E. Uh, e stands for um, two things, really. Empathize with the family. This is a big emotional conversation. We've got to acknowledge that there's some there's some emotion here in this back and forth and, and also plan to extend part of that empathy of understanding. I'm telling you something that's kind of tough. I'm, I'm telling you your child has a challenge that's going to not go away. Um, so we can be, you know, we have a lot of positivity here in our conversation because we feel very empowered for our community, but also like as a parent, 
it is not an easy thing to experience. So we want to recognize the caregiver's emotions in the conversation, um, express some empathy, and know that one of the best ways that we can do that is to say, we can talk about this some more. We can revisit this later. Think about it. Write down some questions. Let's plan another time to talk. Maybe that's a part of service delivery is some time for parent communication in, in, um, in the child services. Uh, let's revisit. Let me answer your questions later. So like empathizing and extending uh, go together in, in a way to serve the how the parent's feeling about all of this. And then, and then finally, the last step, the last S in spices would be to how you close the conversation. So ideally a disclosure conversation should wrap kind of at the, at the end should be, all right, we're, we're strategizing, we're summarizing and strategizing. You know, what have we said here and what are we doing next? We, there's always, you know, the parent, that parent's mind is definitely, what are we doing next? Um, and so we want to like really distill down to a few key points and like, what happens, what happens now kind of from a practical experience, you know, perspective. And again, that may not all happen all at once in one conversation. And depending on setting, you may be talking about, well, a, a therapy plan generally, that might mean a couple of top priority goals. What do we really want to see that we address first? Um, that may be next steps for the family, you know, next steps for the kid, next steps for the family. But if you can leave the conversation with the parent hearing, and this is what we're going to do next, that's really productive. And that's um, uh, comfort for the family and feels positive to the family. Having this model, it's just so helpful uh, in thinking through, you know, sharing this, this uh, diagnosis and taking it to the next step. I also uh, have been sharing more lately about how we got to this point in terms of why is DLD not known? And you talk about how you've been involved in the campaign for a long time, but for our listeners, that long time is like 2018. <laughs> it feels a lot for longer sure. <laughs> because mm -hmm. of the pandemic. It's like, you know, that's the time warp. Uh, so it feels a lot longer. But it really started in 2017, 18. Um, and I have an episode with Dorothy Bishop. She gives us a lot of the background, but, you know, it's had so many different labels. So, you know, they're also entering a very productive space in terms of, you know, new things coming about and everything. But I also let them know that just because this label is newer to them that it has been this, this condition, this brain difference has been studied for decades and that there's a long evidence base that we're pulling from. Cause I've definitely had some parents say, well, is this new? This was just discovered. Uh, no, no, this is the label. There was a consensus around the world about the label. Everyone's coming on board with that consensus. But this condition, this brain variation has been around uh, since we've been studying a long, long, long time, um, a very long time. So I think that's also an important part. I just wanted to throw out because I see this yeah. with the parents I work with as well. Yeah, I do. I, I I find a few sentences as well to kind of squeeze that in. Like this, that, that I know that sounds new to you, but it's 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 a kind of a newish term. But we've had we've known about this forever, uh, and and we've just called it a lot of different things. But we're getting better at that. <laughs> I kind of yes. like lay the we you know this has been a historic challenge, but we're we're getting better. So you're gonna hear, you're gonna see, you're gonna be able to find that this this term is real and out there, and you're not the only ones. But yeah, it's it's. 
it's something we have to do right now. I think that's part of that legitimizing. Hopefully, hopefully not for for too long as it gains momentum. We'll be able to ditch that part of the conversation. Yeah. But I agree. I think we have to demystify it just a bit. The why haven't I heard of this before? You know, whether the parent actually asks that or not, it's it's in there somewhere. Yeah, um, I I also make a little space for that. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Um, okay, well, this is fantastic. What a great discussion about the spices model. And I hope that the listeners will go find that article. We'll link it in the resources and take to heart, you know, how to disclose. Um, but in thinking of time, uh, I wanted to ask you a couple more questions. One, you mentioned that you have an SLPD, but can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Uh, what, how was your decision to get it? What's the process of earning that degree? Because we've talked on the podcast about a PhD um, and you know, there's a master's that is required to practice as a speech language pathologist, but tell us more about this SLPD. Sure. Uh, so in the SLPD is the speech language pathology doctorate. So it's a clinical doctorate degree um, with a different process and different function than the terminal PhD degree. Um, so, you know, people embark on PhD study to really to become researchers, right? That's that path is 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 preparing you to conduct original research and and work um, as faculty at the university level usually and and really be a researcher maybe less so as a as a practitioner the slpd uh it has been designed to for people who who plan to like stay in clinical practice, um, but elevate that clinical practice to really become clinical leaders and work kind of at the um, work as clinical leaders in that clinical space, not so much leaving into and uh, moving into the research space exclusively. Although research is a part of the process, or at least was for me, um, SLBT, SLPD programs are pretty young overall. And so, um, there's not many of them there's been they're growing for sure and they vary so so somebody who's interested in getting an slpd would need to do some um exploration of programs that might be accessible to them because i i found in my journey as a uh, prospective student i found programs with really different organization and and sort of philosophy and emphasis um i ended up the i attended the slpd program at, at kane university where i now teach and what drew me to kane's pro program that i thought was really neat was um we it was a it's a um six semester degree so these slpds tend to be two to three years so it's a post master's degree so it's like building toward a doctorate incorporating the masters that they that you have to already have to enter the programs as a post masters um building on that to you know to a doctoral level of, of credit work um this particular program said we you know we aim to create clinical leaders and in addition to doing research and and publishing the one of the outcomes of the program was to create a product that would influence practice, um, which is my which is my DLD book. And that was really something that for me, I, I wasn't looking to leave practice and and change gears into a research career. But I saw that I'd gotten to a point as a clinician, at, you know, with close to 20 years at that point, um, loving what I was doing, but really wanting to move from just serving my clients to like serving the profession and serving the 
community. Mm -hmm. So that was for me, I, I wanted to take a next step um, without a a career path change really, you know, in the way that a PhD maybe would have done. So it worked out phenomenally for me. Um, I was able to publish the work that we've been talking about today, create a product that I'm really proud of having out in the world. And doing that now, I feel I have a skill set to keep generating you know, creating a creator and creating resources. And that's really something that I wanted to feel prepared for, kind of have walked through a, a, a different process, but not leave, not, I'm not leaving being a clinician. So um, for me, I did my SLPD while practicing full time, uh, the whole time. And I think all of the programs when I was researching were really designed for working professionals. So you can be a practicing clinician and find ways to do this uh, around your primary work in a few years, and then it, it people take it in a variety of of directions. And I do I do teach as well, which is um, fantastic. I love doing that as well. So it's been able it's helped me kind of open new doors professionally, but still stay rooted as a clinician. Oh, that's great! I I love this option. We have a new program too. It just started. Uh, last year at MGH Institute of Health Professions. So, and you're right. It's like every program has a little different angle to it. And I just love that this is another option um, to, you know, practice at the top of your license really and be a leader in the field. Uh, it just gives you another, another possibility. And wow, look what it did for the community of those with DLD that now get to benefit from your expertise in a way that is so accessible through that ebook. So that's exciting. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. Um, well, thank you for sharing a bit about the SLPD. And I ask yeah. every guest <clears throat> these final two questions. First one is, what are you working on now that you're most excited about? So I am just beginning to work on a follow-up to my book. Um, so in my first ebook, I had to, uh, oh gosh, it was so hard to distill down. Like uh, it, it was sort of that minimal viable product concept, right? Get something out because there was such a need in the space, get something out. And as I was writing it, I, I chopped so much content that I didn't feel like I could fully develop at the time. So I have like, I have several others in my head that could be follow-ups, but I, I am mapping out a follow-up um, to that first book. And the focus of it would be um, answers to the kind of first and foremost question I feel like I get from families, which is, what can I do at home? And I think families are are eager for activities that are accessible to them as, as a non-professional, as a parent, that are easy. Um, what can I use that I already have or that I can access, you know, in typical places or, or techniques? How do I say? What do I say? Just really more answers to the um, what can I do as you know, parent or caregiver and at a range of ages. You know, I get that question from parents of five-year-olds. I get that question from parents of 15-year-olds. And I think there's, there's a lot of need for answers to that question a, a kind of across an age span, ch child into, into adolescent, into adolescent. So that's getting mapped uh, now and i'm really excited to you know hopefully be able to offer that to families next wow i'll just be hanging on every word there because that's <laughs> so needed and such yeah. an important resource i'm so glad you're taking the time to do to take all your clinical experience and put it into something 
written that everyone can benefit from. So that, that sounds amazing. Um, and then my last question, what is your favorite book from childhood or now? So I'll give you a, my favorite book now. And a lot of, a lot of your guests uh, talk about books for kids, but I'm going to go in a different direction. We've talked a lot about uh, parents and caregivers of children today. And it happens that my favorite book is um, a novel called The Housekeeper and the Professor by Yoko Ogawa. Mm. And it's this sort of gentle story of a mom and her son and this professor that they meet. And it there's a lot in it about loving a child. And I it's to me, it's this very comforting, peaceful, lovely story that I've read it. I don't know how many times it's, you know, when, like when life gets stressful and I just need to dive into something that like helps the tension go away, I reread this book and it's just, um, anybody who loves a child, I think. And, and it's also another theme in it is, um, sharing passion for for a, a topic or a field or an idea and infusing that into our children uh, and as, a, as an educator uh, I, that's something really close to my heart and that kind of unfolds in this story as well so it's kind of a um, chicken soup for mom soul kind of but without being but but amazing work of literature so I would um, highly recommend it Oh, that's great. I'm going to put it right on my list for sure. It sounds like something yeah. I need as well. So that that's I think you'd enjoy it. Well, thank you so much, Jean, uh, Dr. Ty, for visiting with us today, the listeners and myself. I, I just really appreciate your time and expertise. Thank you so much for having me, Tiffany. This was really fun. Check out www.seeherspeakpodcast.com for helpful resources associated with this podcast, including, for example, the podcast transcript, research articles, and speaker bios. You can also sign up for email alerts on the website or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other listening platform so you can be the first to hear about new episodes. Thank you for listening and good luck to you, making the world a better place by helping one child at a time.